please turn to Isaiah chapter 34 and 35. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise, and the mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and the young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has, a, has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. So we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit now to illuminate these words. And we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. In April 2014, 276 schoolgirls were kidnapped by Boko Haram in a town called Chibok in northern Nigeria. The girls became known as the Chibok girls. Most of them were professing Christians. Over recent years, some of the girls have been uh, released or some have escaped, but the majority remain in captivity in the Sambiza forest. In June 2014, the Islamic State began an ethnic cleansing of different people groups in Iraq, Syria, Libya. In particular, they targeted the Yazidi people of Iraq and Christians in Iraq and Syria. Their persecution and violence against the Yazidi people and Christians drove them into exile into the mountains. In February 2016, the European Union recognized the persecution of Christians by ISIS as genocide. This was followed by the United States and then the British government. But to date, Islamic State have never been fully brought to justice for the harassment and the killing of Christians in these regions. And these two examples are just a mere sample of the persecution that God's people in different parts of the world face. In Sudan, Pakistan, India, China, North Korea, Somalia, just to name a few places, Christians are persecuted for their faith. They are beaten, they are imprisoned, they are exiled. In many cases, they are killed 
Now, in many ways, this should not surprise us because since the fall, God has always, God's people have always been a persecuted people. God, in fact, told the serpent and Eve that he was putting enmity between them and between their offspring. And that is what we see in the rest of the Bible storyline. We see fighting between the devil and God, between the devil's people and God's people. We see persecution and harassment and violence and killing of God's people by the devil's people. Just think of Cain's aggression against Abel, and he killed him in the field. We see it in the kings who kidnapped Lot. We see it in Esau's bloodthirsty desire to murder Jacob in order to get his birthright back. We see it with Potiphar's wife telling lies about Joseph to get him thrown into prison. We see it in Israel becoming slaves in Egypt as Pharaoh oppresses God's people. We see it in the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites fighting against Judah and Israel. We see it in Assyria and Babylon invading the lands of Israel and Judah and carrying God's people off into exile. We see it in the life of our Lord, Judas, the Pharisees, the Romans, Herod, Pilate. They persecuted him and eventually crucified him. And we see it in the life of Jesus' followers. No sooner is the New Testament church in Acts formed than they start experiencing opposition, persecution. They're thrown into prison. They're killed. They're driven into exile. And it's no different today. As Christians, we still are an exiled and persecuted people. Genesis 3.15 stands as a towering text casting its shadow over the rest of the Bible storyline. Biblical history unfolds within the context of that one verse. Redemptive history inhabits the world of Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And in the midst of such enmity, in the midst of such persecutions, what do Christians long for? What do they look for? Vindication. Justice. They long for a day of reckoning when wrongs will be righted. But more than that, they long for deliverance. They long for freedom. They long for a return to go home. They long for a day of shalom when their world will be restored. Isn't that what the Chabok girls are longing for today while we have this conference? As they remain in captivity in the Sambiza forest, is not what Syrian and Iraqi Christians long for as they sleep in tents in the mountains and refugee camps. They long for peace to replace persecution. And that's what Isaiah chapter 34 and 35 give us. They give us God coming to the rescue of his people in judgment and salvation. Remember, we've seen that Isaiah is about the gospel story of how God saves his people through judgment for the transformation of the world. The judgment on Judah was the invasion of the foreign nations, first with Assyria for Israel in the north and then with 
Babylon with Judah in the south. And Judah's salvation was then seen in their return from exile. They were saved through judgment. In other words, God saved his people through the judgment of the exile in order to then transform the world. But Judah's salvation, their return from exile, also included a judgment on the surrounding nations. Yes, the nations were used as the agent of judgment on Israel and Judah, but then after the exile, God comes to save Israel and Judah out of exile. And and when he does that, he comes in judgment on the nations that put them into exile. It's just like in the gospel. God's judgment falls on Jesus for our sin, and then it also falls on those who crucified Jesus for how they treated him. It was the same for Judah. They received God's judgment at the hand of their enemies, but then God was going to judge their enemies for how they treated them. And that's what we have here in Isaiah 34 to 35. In chapter 34, we have God's judgment on the nations, especially on those who were directly involved in taking them into exile. In this case, the nation of Edom. So that's chapter 34, God's judgment. Chapter 35, we have God's salvation of Judah as they return to the land. God's salvation of Judah. So put the two chapters together. What do we have? Judgment, salvation. It's the two-beat rhythm of Isaiah. Judgment, salvation. Only this time, the judgment is not on Judah. The judgment is on Judah's enemies. And that judgment on their enemies will be a means of salvation for Judah as well. That's why the two chapters must be read side by side. They're like two sides of a coin. You cannot have one without the other. Because in order to, in order for Judah to experience true and complete salvation, their enemy must experience complete destruction. Because there's no point in being rescued from your enemy if your enemy survives and then comes back to take you into exile a second time. So in order for Judah to really experience the salvation of God in history, be brought back to their land, Edom must be destroyed. It's a bit like the Chabok schoolgirls. If they just escaped from these evil Boko Haram men, the girls uh, wouldn't necessarily have found true peace because they would continue to live in fear. Will these men come back? Will they take us back into captivity? would only be if Boko Haram is completely destroyed that they could feel uh, truly at peace. It's the same for Judah. Their salvation through judgment on their enemies uh, involves judgment on their enemies, but only when their enemies were completely defeated could they experience true peace. And that's where these chapters about judgment salvation serve a pastoral purpose. Look at chapter 34, verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And then chapter 34, 35, sorry, verse 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. 
Do you see what is at the heart of comfort for an exiled and persecuted people in these passages? Vengeance. Now we tend to recoil at that. Are you saying that as Christians we can get comforted by God coming in vengeance on our enemies? I mean, aren't we uh, supposed to turn the other cheek? Love our neighbors, or sorry, love our enemies? Well, yes, on a personal level, we are. But in the end, if our enemies will not repent, they will not turn to Christ and stop persecuting us, then what they deserve for all of their hatred and persecution is judgment, the vengeance of God. But notice that it is God's vengeance, not ours. We are never to seek personal vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's God's. God will repay every person for any wrong done to his people. And that vengeance is announced to comfort God's exiled and persecuted people. And in Isaiah 34 and 35, it does so in two ways. And here's the comfort that God brings to us as an exiled and persecuted people living in a hostile world. Number one, God's everlasting judgment is coming on our enemies. God's everlasting judgment is coming on our enemies. Chapter 34. Isaiah conveys this with another picture. Remember, he's the great artist painting these pictures in his prophecy. And here's a picture of a bloody desert. As we move through these verses, that's what we're going to see. We'll see the world, the nations become like a bloody desert. Isaiah starts with the whole world in verses 1 to 4. Then he moves to the nation of Eden as a representative of the whole world in verses 5 to 17. So he starts with the whole world, verses 1 to 4, and then he picks Eden as a representative of the whole world, verses 5 to 17. Well, let's look at what he says in verses 1 to 2 about the whole world. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. There's God's end time judgment on the nations. It's described then in verse 3 in graphic terms of slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. There's the picture of death with all this talk of blood. And it also describes the heavens shaking apart. Verse 4, And all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the big tree. It's a picture of disintegration. The whole universe breaking apart as God comes in judgment. Sun, moon, and stars falling from the sky like leaves falling from the tree in the autumn. The skies will burn up like a piece of paper, uh, wrapping paper rolled up in a fire. This is the whole universe crumbling to pieces with blood flowing over the mountains. See the picture? It's a picture of death and disintegration. 
And then Isaiah moves from talking about all the nations to talking about one nation, Edom, verses 5 to 17. Now, why did he choose Edom? <clears throat> well, sometimes a prophet in the Old Testament will pick out a nation and announce God's judgment on them as an example to other nations. And earlier Isaiah has done that with Moab. Moab. But here he does it with Edom. Uh, but there's more to it than just Edom being a representative of the nations. Uh, because Edom rep <clears throat> represents Judah and Israel's most bitter enemy. Edom represents their last enemy. Let me explain what I mean. As you read the Bible story, there is no nation who so consistently expresses hostility to Israel and Judah than Edom. It all begins with Esau, the father of Edom, and his bitter desire to get revenge on Jacob for giving him, for stealing the birthright. And even though Esau and Jacob seem at the end of their lives in Genesis 36 and 37 to sort of agree some kind of peaceful settlement where Jacob comes back into the land and Esau goes out of the land to Mount Seir and forms his own land. It all looks very peaceful, but actually in the history of Israel, that enmity between Esau and Jacob gets played out in the history of Edom and Israel-Judah. When Israel um, come out of the land of Egypt on their way to the promised land, who comes out to attack them? The Edomites. Edom doesn't want them to inherit the land. It's like Esau returning from the dead to pursue his brother Jacob and, and take back the birthright. And when Israel do get into the land, who is constantly attacking them? Edom. Saul goes to war with Edom, 1 Samuel 14. David fights Edom and subdues them, 2 Samuel 8. Solomon experiences an Edomite rebellion, 1 Kings 11. So does Jehoram a century later, 2 Kings 8. And 50 years after that again, Amaziah fights the Edomites in a war. So Edom's hostility, it continues all the way up until the exile. And in 587 BC, when the Babylonians come in to destroy Jerusalem and carry away the exile, who is there aiding the Babylonians? The Edomites. Just read Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, there we wept, when our tormentors said of us, sing us a song. And later on it says, the Edomites helped the Babylonians. And then what happens in history is Edom starts to migrate into the land of Israel, into the Negev in the south. It's like Esau coming back to get his birthright, his inheritance. So throughout God's, the history of God's people, Edom is this constant enemy. Edom is their most bitter enemy, their last enemy, as they went into exile. They were the Boko Haram the Islamic state of the modern world for Christians in Africa and the Middle East. That is what they were like for Judah. And they are singled out here as an example of what God is going to do to all the enemies of his people. Because if he's going to do this to Israel's most 
bitter enemy, then what's he going to do to their other enemies? And the details are graphic, aren't they? I mean, this is a, what would you call this in America? An 18 plus rated version movie. Okay, this is not for the children. Starts with lots of blood in verses 5 to 7. And then it moves to the imagery of a desert in verses 9 to 17. The blood in verses 5 to 7, it's a sign of death. And it comes from the Lord's sword, verse 5. The sword fighting, as we know, is about person-to-person combat. And here it speaks of God personally coming to Edom and exacting individual personal punishment on them. The soul falls from heaven in a kind of arc-like movement and finds its target in Edom. The description is rather bloody. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is seeded with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of animals, of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. So there is a slaughter, and blood is everywhere, which speaks of death. And then it's described as a sacrifice in Edom's capital city, Bosra. Sacrifices were about giving giving to God what is due to him. And that's what this slaughter of Edom will be, giving God what is due to him. In this case, that he be seen as the righteous judge against people who persecute his people. We see that in verse 8. Notice the four. Um, For the Lord has a day of vengeance day of recompense for the cause of Zion. Here's the pastoral purpose of the judgment. It's not just a judgment for judgment's sake, but a judgment for God's people's sake. God is coming in judgment on his enemies for the cause of his people. He loves his people. He wants to preserve his people. He wants to save his people. He wants his people to prosper under his rule in a new Zion. And so he will avenge the wrongs done against them and destroy their enemy forever. This is Genesis 12, verse 3, playing out in world history. Remember God's promise to Abraham, and those who curse you, I will curse. You do not mess with God's people. They are the apple of his eye. You touch them, you touch God. It's like Jesus says to Paul, Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. But the church is so identified with Jesus in their union with Christ that Jesus can say to Paul, why are you persecuting me? And this is the playing out of that Abrahamic promise that those who curse you, I will curse. This is how serious it is to persecute God's people. And then the picture moves from a one-on-one sword fight with lots of blood to a parched desert after a great fire, verses 9 to 10. And the streams of Edom 
shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. The temporal factor of this judgment is seen here. It will be forever. The fire is not quenched. The smoke never stops rising. The land will lie in waste from generation to generation. This is a description of everlasting judgment. And in order to underscore this point that Edom will be destroyed forever like a parched desert, God speaks of new residents moving into the area. Not other nations, but animals. Here's the irony. Death for the people of Eden. Life for the animals of the wilderness. The hawk and porcupine. Jackals and ostriches. Wild animals and hyenas and wild goats and birds. All desert animals will come and find a home in Edom. The picture is full of irony because usually you see such animals on their own, walking in the desert, plains, scavenging for food. The permanence of their habitation of Edom's land is seen in verses 14 and 15. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds herself a resting place. No longer are they scavengers and wanderers out in the deserts. No, they come and they make Edom their home. Verse 15, there the isle nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with his mate. You see it? They have mates, they have nests, they have broods. No place for people. Verse 10, from generation to generation it shall lie waste. No place for princes. Verse 12. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its, all its princes are or shall be nothing. But this becomes a permanent place for animals who will thrive there. Verse 16 and 17. Seek and read the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord is commanded and a spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Just compare verse 17 to verse 10. From generation to generation, it shall lie waste. There will be no inhabitant of Edom in it. Yet for the animals, from generation to generation, it's their land now. Do you see what it's conveying? Edom's destruction will be permanent. It will be everlasting. This is God's first point of comfort to his exiled and persecuted people. God's everlasting judgment is coming on our enemies and they shall never rise to persecute us again. The world and our bitterest enemies will become like a bloody desert forever. There will be irreversible death, irreversible destruction, irreversible desolation. That is what awaits the enemies of God's people. 
Boko Haram and Islamic State might at the moment be ruling over large parts of Nigeria and Syria and Iraq. The Chibok girls might be in exile in the Sambiza forest. Syrian and Iraq Christians might be living in tents and refugee camps. But in the end, these persecutors will know only death and destruction and desolation when God comes to personally deal with them. So that's the first word of comfort for exiled and persecuted Christians. Now you may be thinking, but this, this is the Old Testament. Right? This, this is, didn't Jesus say, turn the other cheek, love your enemies? Well, come with me to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, chapter 1. And verses 5 to 10. Listen to what Paul says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you when you are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Do you see it? Just as in the old, so in the new, there is a day of vengeance for all who have afflicted God's people. And it is given by Paul as a comfort for the Christians who were experiencing that affliction. So this is the first pastoral word from Isaiah to us. God's everlasting judgment is coming on our enemies. Number two, God's everlasting salvation is coming to us. God's everlasting salvation is coming to us. Isaiah chapter 35. Here Isaiah continues with the picture of a desert. Only now the desert becomes a blossoming garden. Remember, Judah was made like a desert going into exile, and now it's going to be reversed. Edom becomes like the desert for persecuting Judah, and Judah now becomes like a blossoming garden. For God's enemies, their judgment is like the world becoming the bloody desert. For God's people, his salvation is like the desert becoming a blossoming garden. Verse 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. It shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. While God's enemies experience death and disintegration, God's people experience life and rejuvenation. Here's the judgment, salvation, two-beat rhythm. 
Edom were judged, chapter 34. Judah will be saved, chapter 35. And Isaiah personifies the desert as singing and rejoicing to the beat of salvation. He pictures the desert as a flower blossoming. The three named places here, um, Carmel, Sharon, Lebanon, speak of well-irrigated places with luxuriant growth and beauty, from wilderness plains to botanic gardens. And this is not what will occupy the exiles, uh, but sorry, this is not what will occupy the exiles after judgment. Uh, it will be the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. It will not just be a beautiful place, but there will be a beautiful person. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. God will be their focus. It's the same again in verse 4. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And this is why as exiled and persecuted Christians, we are to strengthen our hands for action. We are to firm up our weak knees for stability. We are to confirm our anxious hearts for faith because God is coming to seek vengeance. And in that moment of vengeance, he will save his people. The salvation in this chapter is seen in two pictures, uh, just like in chapter 34, the judgment was seen in two pictures of the bloody sword fight and then uh, the desert. And so here we have two pictures. We have renewed bodies, verses 5 and 6. And then we have a renewed world, verses 6 and 7. The renewed bodies are seen in our eyes and ears and legs and tongues being restored to their normal function. And a renewed world is seen in the water breaking forth to irrigate a desert and rejuvenate vegetation. And the two go together. A renewed world for a renewed people. We will be restored as physical beings because the world will be restored. That's what the four is doing in verse 6. Then the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For, because waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, if God is going to rejuvenate the world, then he might as well renovate his people who live in it. It's the order of creation, isn't it? God makes the perfect world. And then in day six, he makes man to live in the world. God made a luxuriant world and garden, then he made man to live in it. The fall ruined both of, that, both of those things. But when God comes to save us, he restores both. The world will be a blossoming garden, but he will not let the lame and the deaf and the blind walk in the garden. They shall be healed and they shall walk and see and hear in that blossoming garden. We know that Jesus gave us a glimpse of this in his earthly ministry when he healed people. All of Jesus' miracles were not just acts of raw power to show that he is God. They do show that he is God. 
but they were harbingers. They were little anticipations of a world to come where the lame were made to walk, where the blind were made to see, where the deaf were made to hear, where lepers were healed of their skin disease. All of those things, the physical healings of Jesus, they were harbingers. They were anticipations of a new creation to come. And it was breaking into the world in the life of Jesus Christ. It's why when John the Baptist was in prison, unsure if Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus tells John's disciples, go and tell John that the blind see and the lame walk and the mute speak. Go and tell John the new world is dawning. Because who else can bring about the new world except the Messiah? And all of this, new bodies in a renewed world, is for one purpose, so that we might find happiness in God. That's where this passage ends in verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That is the end. Happiness with God in a renewed world with renewed bodies. But look how we get there. Verse 8. We get there via a highway. And a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. This recalls the Exodus when Israel walked out of Egypt on a path through the Red Sea on a dry land. It's how Judah would return to Zion from Babylon on a highway. And the highway Isaiah calls the way of holiness. The way to exile in Babylon, it was the highway of sin. That's what got them to Babylon, the highway of sin. And what's going to get them back to their land? The highway of holiness. God is holy, and to travel back to God is to travel the way of holiness. Hence why no unclean person or fool can wander in this way. But it's not just a sinless road. It's a safe road. You notice verse 9, nothing on the road will harm God's people. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Their return is certain, and that's because of who they are walking along, and that's because of who they are walking along this road. The redeemed. Toll roads, you only get on them if you pay. Well, this highway, this way of holiness is like a toll road, but with a difference. You only get on if someone else pays for you. And that's what the word redeemed means. A next of kin who voluntarily pays the price to buy someone back into their family. Think of Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, paying the price to bring Ruth into his family, which is a picture of Christ, our redeemer, our next of kin, who became one of us in order to redeem us, in order to 
buy us back into his family. And the redeemed shall walk on that highway. Who paid for us to get on the toll road to heaven? It is Christ. And again, notice what it leads to, verse 10, to everlasting happiness. People think holiness is boring. People think righteousness is a drab. But look where holiness leads. Those who walk the way of holiness will be crowned with everlasting joy. Which means that all sorrow and sighing of their exiled and persecuted life will flee away. Holiness leads to happiness. As Alec Mateer says in his commentary, to unbroken and unbreakable happiness. The Chabok girls in the Sambiza forest right now know only unbroken sadness and trauma and persecution. The Christians from Syria and Iraq right now know only unbroken heartache and distress. But one day they will come to the heavenly Mount Zion with singing and everlasting joy shall crown their heads. And all the sorrow and the sighing will flee away. Can you hear them singing? Those Chabot girls. But not their tormentors. They shall know only unbroken and unbreakable torment. As Paul says in Thessalonians, there's a coming day of vengeance, and all those who have afflicted God's people will be afflicted with an unbroken, unbreakable, everlasting punishment. But not for those of us who by the grace of God have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has bought us and put us on the highway to Zion. Isn't that something to sing about? Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, in history, your people have always been a singing people, and that's because they are a redeemed people. We know when you rescued Israel out of Egypt, the first thing they did was they sung the song of Moses on the banks of the Red Sea. And we pray, Father, that you would remind us that we are a redeemed people and therefore we ought to be a singing people. So we pray that you would crown our heads with joy, with gladness, because we are a pilgrim people on the way to Zion. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for tomorrow on your day, that we might come joyful, excited, ready to burst into praise for who you are as our great God and Savior and for the protection that you offer us and for that final day of vengeance on our enemies, but for that final day of salvation for us. So we ask all of these things in Christ's strong name. Amen.